Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, oh, that's not me. Uh, that is me. Hello, everybody. It is April the 5th. Uh, 2021. Uh, we've we've had a, a number of shows recently featuring um, books, historical books about terrible events of the past. And of course, the worst event of all about the past is the mid 20th century Holocaust. We had the very distinguished American um, historian Wendy Lauer uh, on the show recently talking about her new book, uh, The Ravine, uh, a book about um, a photograph she found uh, of a death in the Holocaust. Uh, here is uh, the image. Um, it's, it's, it's pornographic on lots of fronts. Let me just show a clip of, uh, of, of, of Wendy talking about this. Actually, it does have a certain... Uh, composition that one could argue is a kind of pornographic atrocity photo with the women, the woman in that position with the men with their guns. So let's let's be clear about. Uh, I think that uh, it's important to note that this image is, of course, deeply pornographic. The the, the Holocaust uh, as an event is an example of, of the worst kind of pornography. It's all about power and uh, the way to perhaps challenge. The Holocaust, at least in a historical sense, is to turn it upside down and fight back as historians, as people chronicling uh, what happened in those terrible days between uh, 1939 and 1944 or 1945. I think my guest on the show today is doing that. Uh, she has a new book out. Her name is Judy Battalion. Her book is The Light of Days, and it's a story of women female resistance fighters uh, in Hitler's ghettos, resistance fighters to Nazism. Um, Judy, I don't mean to bring up pornography because, you know, in many people's minds it's rather trite and absurd when using it in, in the context of, um, of, of the Holocaust. Um, but your book is about power, isn't it? The Light of Days is a book about the ways in which uh, Jewish women, not only Jewish women, but mostly Jewish women, fought back against the Nazis. Is that fair? That is absolutely fair. Uh, I focused on Jewish women, in particular in Poland, and it's a story of various groups of Jewish women who... Uh, collaborated and took part in organized and often violent resistance against the Nazis. What then is your response to this kind of photograph of empowered, and these, were, these weren't even official uh, German, these were either collaborators, Ukrainian collaborators, or uh, people who had been requisitioned by the German military, this death of innocent civilians. Um, is it a pornographic image in your mind? I mean, you know, it depends how you define pornography. That's not something I necessarily um, addressed in my book. I did talk about sexual violence in the Holocaust, um, especially because I'm talking about women. 
Um, but of course, these are images. I mean, this was a, 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 of course, it was about power. Of course, it was about a, a sickening desire for power that led to brutality and horrific, tormented behavior. Um, and then I wrote about the women that tried to get that power back, who would have seen images like that and felt full of fury and, and a fight for, for, for justice, for revenge. Uh, one of the lovely touches, uh, Judy, in your book, uh, the images uh, or the names of, of, of many of these women that you inscribe in the inside cover mm. kind of reminded me a little bit of, of Yad Vashem or, or some other uh, monument to, to the Holocaust. Uh, why did you choose to put these women's name in the inscription in the book? That's a great question. When I first started this project, this began I by accident, like many book projects, um, I came across a dusty old Yiddish book uh, called Women in the Ghettos, Freuden in the Ghettos, an unusual book. I found it at the British Library. Um, even more unusual, I have Yiddish. So I started reading through this book, which I assumed would be, uh, you know, about gloom and, and mourning. And instead, it was this Yiddish compilation published in 1946 about several dozen young Jewish women who had fought back against the Nazis. Um, and this is what inspired the entire project, this find, this rare find. Um, and when I first found the book, I, you know, the book listed about 12 different Jewish women, uh, not 12, sorry, several dozen. I said 12, um, let's say 40 different Jewish women. And in my mind, that was, that was how many women were involved in this resistance. But then as soon as I really started to dig into the research and go to archives and read their testimonies and read their memoirs and entrench myself in their stories, I found hundreds of women that were involved in organized resistance, maybe even thousands. And when it came to write the book, I felt a great pressure to decide who to write about because every single story was so incredible, was so daring and moving um, that I, I felt that I had to somehow memorialize the, the fighters whose stories I, I couldn't ultimately end up telling in this book. And so I had I made a list of hundreds of names of women who I came across in my research. And then some of that was um, published by the publisher as, as the sort of front pages of the book. I thought it was a very nice, a very moving uh, touch uh, in the book. Um, you, you begin, as you say, the book in the British Library. This is a very personal book. I mean, it's historical, but it's also a book about you. Uh, you're in the British Library um, and you're surrounded, it seems, by kind of silence. Um, you were troubled, I think, by being in this British Library, this, this reading room that smelt like old pages. Uh, you were looking for strong Jewish women. And you happened in the early 2000s to come to London. Um, but it seemed as if you were being stifled um, by uh, the Brits, as you call them, uh, that you were wearing your Jewishness too openly, too casually. What happened in the early 2000s to you, Judy, in London? Um, you know, I, I felt that for the first time I grew, I grew up, let me backtrack a little. I grew up in a very tight knit Jewish community in Montreal. Um, and I then went to college on the East coast of the United States. I, I was in communities that had a, were very Jewish, had a lot of Jewish people, 
um, around me. It was not it was not an anomaly to be Jewish. And then after college, I moved to London, um, where I ended up living for for almost a decade. But in London, suddenly in the context I was working in, it actually was quite rare to be Jewish, or at least to be so apparently outwardly Jewish. Um, it wasn't something I was at all conscious of, but I was suddenly made to be quite conscious about it. It was different. And uh, I, I apparently really appeared to people like an American Jew, um, even though I'm a Canadian Jew, but I, I, I fit some sort of type. And I, I suddenly became very conscious about how I appeared and that I appeared Jewish. It wasn't something that I'd thought about before. And this troubled me. I myself am from, uh, I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I have a bit of a difficult time assessing danger, assessing threat. And, and you know, we're, when I was, it was pointed out that I was so Jewish, was this, was this, was this dangerous? Was it not? Was this troublesome? Was it not? And these were the questions that were on my mind when I decided to write a, a performance piece. At the time, I was doing a lot of performing um, about um, the Jewish, about Jewish, about danger, and really, so strong Jewish women, women who had faced danger. Yeah, and the book itself, um, and 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 the spirit of your your grandmother, uh, Bubi uh, Zelda, uh, really does um, really does uh, uh, color the, the narrative. Um, this this woman, uh, Bubi Zelda, Zelda, your your grandmother, I mean, is it your your maternal grandmother, right? Yeah, my mother's mother. She she seems to be a woman who you both embrace and are fleeing from. You you're looking for a different kind of Jewish female, aren't you, in the book? You know, consciously, I, I don't know that I was when I started, but my family escaped from um, Poland. They were um, they went east. They were imprisoned in Siberian gulags. That's how they survived the war. It was brutal and horrific, and they never talked about it. Um, but that's that's how the majority of Polish Jews who survived survived the war. It's a very under-discussed experience as well. Um, but in my family, it, I'd always felt that you know there was a lot of uh, anxiety and anguish and 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 difficult. These were you know. Uh, my, my mother was born in 1945 um, on my grandparents' way back from Siberia to Poland to see if anyone uh, had survived. She was a refugee before knowing what home was. Um, and my family had obviously been troubled by this, by this horrific part of our history. Um, and so, yes, I think you're right in saying my grandmother was such a strong woman. She really raised me. She provided me with so much, a model of strength, but she also um, had fled. And, you know, in my family, fleeing meant life. It meant living. It meant surviving. And so this, these were conflicting. You know, I, I asked myself a lot about these questions around fight or flight. And that comes up a lot in the book too. What do you do when you're faced with dangers? How do you respond? And so why I was so attracted to these women in the story is that they they fought. Some of them left Nazi-occupied Poland and, and came back, voluntarily came back to fight the Nazis. They smuggled themselves back across the border um, to help organize the Jewish community, to help, um, to help defy. 
So I was very taken and, and intrigued by that kind of personality. Who does that? Who, who, who goes back to fight? Uh, Judy, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had, I, I'm sure you know her work, Sherry Turkle on the show, uh, the author of The Empathy Diaries, a uh, very distinguished uh, sociologist and, and thinker on technology, actually, at MIT. But this book is uh, an autobiography, and, and she also writes about uh, her family didn't go through the Holocaust, but they were all European. Uh, they were all American Jews who had recently come to America, and they spoke in very subdued tones about the Holocaust, and they were forever nervous. So I was particularly intrigued by uh, your description, as you say, of, of, of your grandmother Zelda. Um, she would tell you the story of how uh, she escaped. Uh, you, you, and I'm quoting you, you say, you write, she'd relay this dreadful story to me every single afternoon as she babysat me after school, tears and fury in her eyes. Uh, you had a similar kind of grandmother, I think, to Sherry Turkle, this obsession with suffering, this obsession with ill fate and the evil of the Holocaust. How did it impact you as you grew up? I think I also became obsessed with suffering. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a very anxious person. I'm always looking for the next danger. I'm always on high alert. Um, I, I think that's how it affected me primarily. Um, my, um, you know, and I, I as so I, my, I wrote another book about this a few years ago. Um, both my grandmother and my mother were compulsive hoarders. Um, and I think a lot of that was filling a, a really some traumatic hole, these, uh, you know, this early refugee experience and this, you know, uh, looking for something solid to hang on to in their lives. Everything had been taken. They wanted to, to, to hang on to whatever they had. And of course, I myself became what I call a militant minimalist. Um, I, I, you know, it was very important for me to do the exact opposite. I had to try to find solace in what was the opposite of my family's manifestations of their trauma or their trauma, um, which is in fact what landed me up in England in the first place. I, I moved, you know, from my very Jewish community in Montreal to London. I was working like in the art world in London. I used to say curator was the least Yiddish word I knew and I wanted in. Um, I was running away from from so much pain in my family, really, just so much pain. And and then, of course, I end up finding a book that brings me right back to my roots and right back to the Holocaust. And of course, uh, as I suggested earlier, Judy, you were looking for strong women and you found them, or at least you found them in the, the light of days. Let me show you. Uh, some images of these women who feature in your book. Um, perhaps you might uh, talk to me a little bit about each of these women. Uh, this, of course. The name of this woman is, is I think it's Vladka Mead, is it? This is Vladka Mead. She, this picture was taken in 1944 in central Warsaw. She was a Jewish woman. She was part of the underground and uh, and here's her, by the way, here's her fake ID. So uh, uh, remarkable. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so she was, so part of the underground that I write about, women had to leave the ghettos. They had to leave camps. They had to be out and about in Aryan 
Poland, um, not the Jewish prisons of Poland, the camps and the ghettos. So in order to do that, they had to pretend to be Catholic girls. Um, and here's Vlad Kamid. This is 1944, the middle of the war. And she was an underground, uh, undercover worker. She, here she is dressed up like a, you know, a going for a day of lunch and theater, um, a, you know, upper middle class young Polish woman. Really, she was doing missions across Warsaw. And this time in 44, she was very involved in rescue. She was involved in rescue organizations that provided money, food, medical help, fake ID to thousands, thousands of Jews in hiding in Warsaw. Um, prior to that, when the ghetto still existed, she helped bring weapons in to, um, to, to, for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. She smuggled dynamite into the ghetto through a hole in the ghetto wall. Um, she, I mean, traveled the country helping build a defense, you know, weapons, um, as well as providing help to so many Jews in hiding. And the whole time she was undercover. She was performing this identity. She was passing as a non-Jew. What about this woman? Uh, this this was a, a photograph taken in 1936. Her name is Newta uh, Teitelbaum. Uh, this was this was uh, taken when she was a schoolgirl in Lodz uh, in, in 1936. What was remarkable about uh, Newta? So Newta Teitelbaum. I mean, look at look at this this. Polish girl. So this was taken a, a few years before the war. She lived in Warsaw. She actually had a history degree from Warsaw University. Um, and in the war, she basically became an assassin. Um, she put, she braided her hair. She would put in a kerchief. She was in her 20s at the time, early 20s, but she made herself look like a teenage girl. And she would pretend to be a sort of innocent Polish, beautiful teenage girl and would work her way into Gestapo homes and offices and shoot them. And again, posing as a non-Jewish girl, there are you know, a couple of stories in one of them, she goes to the Gestapo headquarters on Susha Street in Warsaw and says you know, she needs to speak to a certain officer and, and they, she's blushing and they think, oh, she must be pregnant. She calls him her boyfriend and they show her to the office and they kind of leave them alone to have the conversation. And she just pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head um, and then walks back out naively. And that's how she got her nickname, uh, Little Wanda with the braids. And she was on every Gestapo most wanted list. What about these two women, uh, Gusta Davidson and Minka Liebenskind? Uh, this was taken in 1938 at the uh, at a uh, at a summer camp, a Jewish summer camp. Two women who look, at least in 1938, to have anything but the Holocaust on their mind. I mean, they're so even the they people write about um, uh, Gusta's you know movie star looks. I mean, I I, I loved finding these look like a Hollywood star. Star. Um, they became leaders in the underground in Krakow. Um, and I, we know about them because Gusta wrote a diary about the underground and she wrote it while in a Gestapo prison in Krakow. And she got groups of women around to like sit around her and distract the, the guards and the other prisoners. And they would take turns writing. They would smuggle in the whole system. They smuggled in pencils. They wrote on toilet paper. And she left them under floorboards 
Um, and this is the story she tells. It's called Justina's Narrative. It's, it's been translated into English. Um, and it's about the Krakow underground. This was an underground that collected weapons, uh, set up um, various um, uprisings, various actions around the city. They once blew up a Christmas gathering at a cafe in central Krakow, killing a number of Nazis. Um, and women were very involved in, it, it was called the Akiva Youth Group, had their Fighting Pioneers was the underground organization in the ghetto. And there were many, many women leaders in, in, in the Krakow resistance. Finally, and this is my favorite photograph because it's a photograph within a photograph. These two very Polish looking women in, um, this was again taken in Warsaw in the quote unquote Aryan part of Warsaw uh, under German occupation in 1943. But of course, the, the, these two women were not uh, Polish Aryans. Again, they were resistance fighters. Tell me about these two women. Yeah, this is Hella Schopar on the left and Shoshana Longer. And they were part of the, they were Jewish girls. They were part of the underground. This was Warsaw in 1943. And they were dressed up as, as, you know, Polish girls out for a day on the town. Um, and Hella was one of the sort of master couriers of weapons. There are stories she would you know, she tells one story where she was met, um, you know, went, took the train from Krakow to Warsaw. She would borrow or find designer handbags and clothes. She didn't even have fake ID. She, she just, she somehow got away with it. Um, and she, she met a Mr. X from the Polish resistance on a corner. They had all these codes. She would ask him, he was reading a newspaper. That's how she knew it was him. Um, she asked him to see the newspaper. That's how he knew it was her. She followed him at a distance. They went on trams. She, you know, finds him. They find this house up outside of the city. She waits there for like two days and ends up smuggling back to Krakow five guns, four pounds of explosives, and a whole bunch of cart clips of cartridges um, stashed in this designer handbag and in her clothes and in her pockets. Um, and brings them back to Krakow for their revolts there. Judy, your, your, your book ends, the narrative ends in Israel when you, you go to, to meet the family of a woman called Rinia uh, Kukielka, who, who, uh, who's, who, who, who is perhaps the, 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 the brightest spirit in, in your narrative. But I'm curious about Israel itself. We had uh, last week... Um, Noah Tishby, the author of Israel, which is a fairly right-wing history of Israel. I don't think I was actually hard enough on her in the interview. But anyway, um, at one point, and, and I read the book and I was looking for references to, to the Holocaust, and that there were none, or there was only one. And I, and I asked um, Noah why there were no references to the Holocaust in this book about Israel, in this book trying to justify uh, the Israeli state, and this is what she said. Persecution, pogroms, and the Holocaust are a thread that uh, have been uh, plaguing the Jewish people for thousands of years. There's probably uh, some research that it should be done on epigenetic memory of, of these traumas, these generational traumas. I The reason I didn't... Um, touch upon the Holocaust in, I, I think I mentioned it in one paragraph and also, you know, in, in kind of in passing is because, because I feel like 
I, I didn't want this book to be, I wanted the book to stay optimistic. Do you think that the, the spirit of resistance was inherited by Israel? Um, uh, and secondly, do you, do you think that Noah is right to uh, suggest that if you write about the Holocaust, uh, you, it, it's hard to remain optimistic? I mean, it's hard to remain optimistic. Look at the photo you began with, our, 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 our interview with. I mean, this is a brutal, horrific uh, time in history. Um, it was very difficult for me to work on this project. It's part of why it took me so long. I personally found it hard to engage with the material and needed, needed to be in certain places in my own life to be able to sit with these testimonies and these stories. Um, Having said that, there are, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the story I'm telling is incredibly optimistic or at least provides us with, with a lot of hope. Um, this is a story of young people who, I mean, against every odd, the biggest armies in the world couldn't defeat Hitler and they still went out and tried to fight back and tried to fight. They had for their what they believed in, for freedom, for 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 revenge as well, for justice. Judy, to um, what extent are you? Try I know that you say in the book that you're not really trying to rewrite history. You're not pretending that these women actually successfully resisted the the the, the Nazis. But is there an element of of uh, of, hist of of a sort of revisionist historiography to your book that you are trying to remind people that Jews didn't just go to their death? silently, uh, without resistance? I mean, I'm definitely, I'm telling a story that hasn't been told widely before. Um, this is a story of, I mean, constant resistance, constant resilience. I, I can't now look back at the narrative of the Holocaust without seeing it as one of, a, a, a story of just whatever, six years of defiance. Um, I, I'm what I said in the book is I, you know, I can't pretend that this was a David and Goliath story where the underground succeeded and, and killed all the Nazis. They did not. The, the numbers aren't impressive if you look at the numbers, but the, the spirit is. Uh, Sherry Turkle wrote The Empathy Diaries, Judy. Um, uh, her, her, her shtick is empathy. She's made a career out of it, a very successful one, and I think she's right in many ways. I, I wonder if the writing of this book made you in any way more empathetic, if it's possible, uh, or any less empathetic towards the Germans. We had a couple of months ago the Anglo-Jewish writer John Kampfner on the show who wrote in a book called Why the Germans Do It Better, arguing that whilst the history of Nazi Germany was, of course, catastrophic, over the last 75 years, Germany has become a beacon to civilized, uh, to the civilized world. He calls it the, the leading grown-up country in the world. How did the writing and research of this book change your opinion of the Nazis and the Germans and this ability, whether we should or shouldn't, forgive what happened during the war? I think that's a great question. And so my book really is focused on Poland. And of course they're Nazis, but really I'm talking about Poland in this book. And so I, I'm gonna answer that about Poland. My own, all four of my grandparents were born in Poland. I, I was in Poland a couple of years ago and people you know, they're laughing like you're more Polish than we are. 
um, I have a very complicated and conflicted relationship with Poland. But I do have to say that I felt writing this book made me more empathetic. Um, I, I mean, many Poles were collaborators, many sold out Jews for money, for sugar, for whiskey. Um, so I, I do not forgive that. But I do um, also say that many Poles did help Jews. Um, and, you know, I, I really, my, my main characters, for instance, Renya, who you mentioned before, she was caught. And when she was caught, she, as I said, these women were pretending to be Catholic Poles. So she was caught and they thought she was Polish. They thought she was Catholic, part of the Polish resistance and part of the, uh, they didn't think she was Jewish. And she was imprisoned in a Gestapo prison, and she was brutally tortured, really brutally tortured, not as a Jew, but as a Polish spy. Um, and that too opened my eyes to, to the Polish experience of the war um, and the pain that Polish people suffered. When I say Polish, I mean Catholic Polish people suffered as well. Mm, and, 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 and that comes out actually in the title of the book because it comes from... Um, uh, uh, a song dedicated to the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, um, but it's about Warsaw, Warsaw with a weeping face, with graves on street corners, will outlive her enemies, will still see the light of days. So this is a book about seeing once again the light of days. And uh, what I liked about the book is it does, for better or worse, um, Judy, have a happy ending or a kind of happy ending. Uh, as I said, you end up in Israel uh, uh, talking to um, to the relatives of, of Renia, the, the the spirit, the the heroic spirit of uh, or spiritess of the book, a and you seem to discover as you look out over the golden sunset of Haifa that you'd found yourself. Is that fair? Mm, part of myself. Um, I think. I think what I realized in that moment was that I perhaps I had been looking, I, I had felt originally when I was attracted to Renya and, and sort of decided upon her as a central character, uh, I felt similar to her. I, I was drawn to her writing and I had a kind of writerly connection to her. She was very kind of frank and uh, a little bit witty even. And I, I was very taken by that. But sort of coming through the whole project and, and meeting her family all the way at the end, um, brought home that she was actually very different from, from my family. The family was very different. They were, um, you know, she had, she, she was on the, my, you know, as I said, my grandmother talked to me about her murdered sisters almost every day. Um, and Renya didn't talk about the Holocaust for many years, um, which is part of why this story got lost. Um, but yeah, I kind of realized that perhaps I, I had been looking for that kind of answer to how one moves on after the Holocaust. Um, not that there's a right way or a wrong way, but it was, it was in fact different from my family's way. Well, the book, uh, Judy's book, The Light of Days, is a very noisy book about silence and, and a wonderful a testimony to the way in which some Jewish women, and, 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 and we know their names now, uh, remarkable women actually did, with, in, with incredible bravery, uh, resist uh, evil. Uh, Judy, congratulations on the book. You're in New York now. 
uh, back home or one of your homes. Uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times in early April uh, 2021? We're all stuck inside, in addition to your new book, The Light of Days. That's a good question. And I, you know, this week is Holocaust Remembrance Day is Yom HaShoah. So I was recently thinking about what were books I could tell people to read about the Holocaust in this difficult time that, um, that in fact, are, have a different spin on it. Like that original Yiddish book that I found kind of jolt you out of, of the, of the, of the narratives you're used to. And one of them is, uh, this is, a, I mean, this is an award-winning book, but I really, um, uh, one of my favorites that looks at the Holocaust in a, in a very different way is a David Grossman's A Horse Walks Into a Bar. Oh, am I holding it right in the, in the screen? Yes, excellent. Um, and he, I- He's an Israeli writer. He's an Israeli writer, and this, this book blew me away. Both uh, just the narrative and the, I mean, really a gripping, and insightful and and troubling, an unusual book. Yeah, and David Grossman is a delightful, uh, not only a wonderful writer, delightful man. I once went to a football match with him at the Maracana Stadium in Rio de Janeiro. Well worth it. So I would add, uh, as I said, I, I think The Light of Days is a wonderful book, and it probably should be read with Wendy Lauer's The Ravine, very different kinds of books, but both about Poland, or certainly, if not Poland, the Ukraine, the western part of Ukraine, eastern part of Poland, both essential reading. Congratulations on the book, Judy. Thank you so much. Love to have you back on the show again to talk about uh, new work. Thank you again. Have a thank you for having me. uh, April 2021.